And watching that story, I couldn't not devote some portion of my life to it. I didn't know what that might look like. I also had the incredible benefit to watch some of those people break those cycles and to see that there are practical solutions for these problems. The world does not have to be this way. And there are just these gaps that have to be filled and they have to be filled in the right way and in a healthy way. Welcome to Better Together with Kosti Epifonsev, a podcast on parenting, business, and living life intentionally. We're here every week to bring you thoughtful conversation on making your own path to success, challenging the status quo, and finding all the ways we're better together. Here's your host, Kosti Epifonsev. Hey, y'all, this is Kosti, and today I'm here with my guest, Travis Troll, founder and executive director of Flint Global a 501c3 organization dedicated to helping break the cycle of extreme poverty and dependence to create flourishing families and communities that make the world a brighter place. Travis, it's always an honor to have another immigrant on the show. For our listeners who don't know, you were born and raised in East Africa. Tell us about that experience and how it influenced your passion for community development and social entrepreneurship. Thank you. Yes. Well, first of all, just thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's great to be with y'all today. I was born in Kenya, in East Africa, and I think I moved to the U.S. the same year you did, in 1994. Yep. Definitely, that is one of the most formative parts of my life. Mm -hmm. The transition itself, leaving everything I had ever known and starting from scratch and having to discover this new world. But even more so, the life and learnings of what happened before I moved here. Having grown up in a place that's so different from uh, where we are now, and bringing those learnings to apply to the rest of my life is just truly formative. I feel like I should make a caveat that my parents are from the United States. Okay. So while I fit the definition of an immigrant, they don't. And so I want to acknowledge that out of respect for the incredible hard work of so many people who had so many more obstacles than me, that I had great privilege that my parents were culturally fluent. They had degrees from the U.S., so my pathway was a lot easier. Why did they decide to move to Kenya from the U.S.? And also, where in the U.S. are they from? My mom is born and raised South Alabama, many generations, farm people. My dad grew up all over, Morocco, France, California. He was an Air Force kid. Okay. So he was never somewhere longer than it maybe a year at a time. And they just had this calling to serve. They cared about the underserved, the Mm -hmm. people who lack the privileges that they had. And their story took them somewhere. Certainly my mom's family could have never imagined. All of her siblings stayed in the same little town forever. But They ended up in a tiny little community in Kenya that at that time especially was very remote, very isolated. Elephants roaming the forest behind our backyard. So yeah, that's what took them there. Before we start talking about your company, Flint Global, I do have to ask, did they meet Obama's father? We lived on the opposite side of the country. Okay. My wife actually also grew up in Kenya. She was born there as well. And she lived on the side of Kenya, the Obama's family. I was there uh, maybe like a year and a half ago and I went by the village. Okay. There's signs everywhere now. It's I a mean, big I'm sure it's like a huge deal. But uh, I didn't have time to stop by and check it out. Amazing. Yeah. 
So walk us through the creation of Flint Global, talk about how the organization has evolved, and share a bit more about the Spark movement overall. From the very beginning, my life experience was immersed in the realities of people who live in extreme poverty. We're talking about people who are scraping by on less than $57 a month. These are the most financially impoverished people on the entire planet. Oh my gosh. Where you're in that cycle where you can be working so hard day after day, trying everything you can think of, and you'll start to make a little progress. And then a kid gets sick, something unexpected happens. It's a volatile place to live and you get knocked back down and you're back where you started. And that goes over and over and over again because you happen to be born in a particular place where for historical reasons you haven't had access to certain skills, certain connections, certain resources. And for me, it wasn't conceptual. These were my closest friends, my Kenyan friends who I was roaming the fields with. And watching that story, I couldn't not devote some portion of my life to it. I didn't know what that might look like. I also had the incredible benefit to watch some of those people break those cycles and to see that there are practical solutions for these problems. The world does not have to be this way. And there are just these gaps that have to be filled and they have to be filled in the right way and in a healthy way. I watched nonprofits. I watched great organizations with great intentions waste a lot of resources And I watch them oftentimes, sadly, do a lot of harm in the name of doing good. And that is not okay with me. That has never been okay with me. So I've always had this drive to somehow play a role in that. And my life has had many twists and turns. After college, moved to Tanzania for five years. During that time period, some of my close friends lost children to dehydration because they couldn't afford a $20 IV at a local clinic. Terrible. Simply having cash in their pockets would have solved these problems, but they didn't have them. And I could give cash, but then what about next month? What about next month? Mm -hmm. And a lot of the solutions that a lot of money is being pumped into provide that temporary relief. And we need that. We need to provide emergency relief to people when they need it. But in tandem with that, we need real lasting long-term solutions that partner with people to walk alongside them as they build their own ability to provide for themselves year after year and create generational transformation. So I stumbled out of sheer desperation, looking at my neighbors and saying, what can I do? Just saying, let's start a business together. If we can build a business that's healthy and sustainable and profitable, then you'll not just have income to pay the school fees or the medical bills today, but you'll have it next month and the next month. And so I found myself in Tanzania having no prior background in business, knowing nothing about it, and certainly having never imagined I would be interested. And what years were these? This was 2010 to 2015. Okay. And we started building businesses. And for the first time in my time there, it was a solution that was working. And in retrospect, it's what worked for my friends in Kenya who grew up in the toughest situations and now are building their own houses and they own a vehicle. Then I unexpectedly ended up back in the U.S. All of a sudden, I had no job experience that looked good on a resume. Just this weird, like he went to Tanzania for five years. (laughs) I was starting from scratch with nothing. The way it had happened when we had to leave, 
we kind of lost everything. And so it's like, well, I guess I'll try it myself. I'm going to try to build businesses. So I did a number of things, learned a ton. I got to work with incredible people who taught me so much. The learning curve in my life since 2015 has just been hard to process really. And then that's what brought me to Cookville for a business opportunity. I was consulting for a nonprofit in Nashville that was looking for someone who understood business and business thinking, but also how to get things done on the ground in some of the toughest places on earth, like some of the countries where I had worked a lot in Africa. And then I started working for them full time because I just could tell I want to help other people build businesses. I want to help that be a sustainable solution to poverty. Through that process, eventually the door opened to launch Flint Global. So we registered at the end of 2019, kind of more formally launched March 2020. And this was an opportunity to take all of those pieces of my life that I could have never planned, never coordinated, that had come in front of me and to deploy it in the healthiest possible way that will impact the most people with real results, not just a bunch of nonprofit activity, but actual outcomes that change people's lives. And so the company has been around for three years. How much different is it now versus when you first started it? Yeah, so we've just grown dramatically. Okay. We hit the ground running. Some of the work I had done for the nonprofit in Nashville, we brought along with us. Okay. We were starting from scratch in terms of funding, but we had built a lot of systems and tools and curriculums and even some partnerships overseas that were handed off to us. Do you have an estimate of how many countries you're in and how many businesses you helped create? Yeah, so at three years in now, last year, we impacted over 18,000 people. Oh, wow. And we started over 650 businesses around the world in 11 different countries, four different continents. And so what is the Spark Movement? Yeah. So zooming back a little, Flint, Flint Global. Flint is a reference to the fire starting stone. Small, unassuming, seemingly unimpressive, but in the hands of the right person, used the right way, can create a spark that ignites great change. So that's what we're about. We're about being that spark in different lives around the world. And the spark is a community of global change makers who are committed to changing lives, not just today, but for generations to come, catalyzing this generational transformation. And that includes a woman in a remote village in Tanzania who's building a business in partnership with Flint Global to bring her family out of poverty. And that includes people here in Cookville who have gathered around this and are deploying their talents, their resources, their time, their voices to try to amplify this work, this movement to help change lives. So you're in 11 countries. Every country is different. Some market economies are not the same. So that means that your application for entrepreneurship is very different depending on what country you're in. Yep. What's it like managing a community that's spread around the world? One of our core values that really shapes everything we do is that lasting solutions come from local problem solvers. People born and raised in those communities, not people from boardrooms 7,000 miles away. Mm -hmm. So the last thing we want to do is go in and say, hey, we have the answer for you. We know what you need because we don't. That's why there has been so much waste in the international nonprofit world. But what we can do is we have our toolkit, we have our connections, we have our community, 
and we can go into these local communities where there are already people doing incredible work. Locals who have been there long before we even heard of the place and are going to be there long after we're gone. Sure. And we can come alongside them and amplify the work they're already doing. We have a very specific way of doing that because what we have seen everywhere we work in the world is that there are core fundamentals that if they're not addressed, they dramatically affect the likelihood that a business will work, that someone will be able to increase their household income. And that's one of the fun parts of this work is I get to see so many types of businesses in so many environments and I get to see what's consistent everywhere and I get to see just how dramatically each business is affected by those contextual issues. But like the businesses that you would create in the United States is much different than the business that you would create in Kenya. So what type of businesses are you helping these individuals start? Most of the people in the world living in extreme poverty are farmers. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of the businesses that are being incubated through our system are farms or farming adjacent. It could be poultry. It could be a supplier. It could be transporting farm goods. But most of them are that. But we have mobile money businesses. We have fire extinguisher businesses. There's an incredible diversity. But our process is to train people on the fundamentals related to practical business skills, personal finance, mindset around life and business, and connecting to markets, improving supply chains, and even bringing in actual connections that will help remove a lot of the friction that is in place in these resource-scarce environments, and then walk alongside them as they build business plans, as they discover those local nuances that we could never understand, and then they build a business. How do they access financing? Is there a system for saving money if they don't have access to banking? Most don't. Right. Addressing the whole ecosystem that surrounds someone on the ground in a remote community who's going to increase their household income. And all 11 countries, are they all African countries? No. So we're in uh, Colombia, okay. Guatemala, Honduras, Haiti. What's it like working India, in Haiti? Oh my gosh, that's got to be very tough. Yeah, especially right now. Last, Basically halfway through last year, we had to put most of the work on pause and right. it's for the security and safety of... There's just so much volatility that escalated over the course of last year. Yeah. And that is a reality of these places that affects the way in which we do our work. If you don't acknowledge the volatility, then you're not being realistic. And And it's not just market volatility. It's right. the actual social volatility. Like they could have a new government, you know, and a lot, I, think, I think a lot of people don't appreciate the fact that, you know, when you live in the United States, you can build a business and you just have to worry about the economic volatility of things. You don't have to worry about the social things. Exactly. As a successful entrepreneur and a business leader, what advice would you give to our listeners who are considering starting their own businesses or pursuing social impact projects? I have a few thoughts. My first thought would be, that the word successful is a fickle word. And if we don't define what we mean by that up front, each of us for ourselves, then we might think we're finding a type of success. And in retrospect, looking back at the end of our lives, we maybe missed the mark. And so my first thing would be, what is the success that we want? What does it mean to live the good life? I think there are a lot of quote unquote, very successful people who look back 
wish they had made different decisions because it's all trade-offs. You can't do everything. You can't have it all. And so what's the most important? And for me, that's people, the people in my life and prioritizing that. Just to clarify, you put people in front of money, essentially. I guess so. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) That's great. And, but also in terms of my time commitments, like I could just drive and drive and, and build a bigger and bigger organization and try to leave a legacy in that way. But at the end of the day, what do my kids remember about me? Right. Was I present? Was I there? What about the people I interacted with each day as I walked through my day? Those are the things I don't want to miss and that it's very hard not to miss in the chaos of trying to do important things, even if you're doing good things. And then that's related to another thing. I really think success in business in life, it is all about the people you surround yourself with. Better together, as you say. The more I can surround myself with really excellent, good people who make me better, the better I'm going to be. And whether that's within my organization or my friendships. And if you're trying to build a business in a specific area, Mm -hmm. then how can you get in the room with people who are really good in that field, spend more time with them, just learning and being present and discovering all the things they've learned the hard way. You can skip a lot of pain. If you're willing to learn under people who have already been through that pain. And then the other thing I would say is discomfort. If you're not willing to endure a lot of discomfort, then it's going to be very hard to get the job done. The reality of anything that brings value, it brings value because it's scarce. And it's scarce because it's hard to get to. So if you want to do something different, if you want to build something special, if you want to break the status quo, then by its very definition, it's something that's hard to get to, and you've got to be willing to endure discomfort to get there. You know, it's interesting when you bring that up because I was just having a conversation with our COO, and as we're talking, the problems that come up, you know, the staffing problems, the quality problems, all these things, problem, 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 problem. Yep. But a lot of times, people, they shy away from tackling those problems head on or just providing a solution for it because they think that it's just the way that business is. Well, it's just part of the industry. You know, it's just the way things operate. But the people that are excellent, the companies that grow to multi-million, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars are the companies that tackle those problems head on and they solve them. And they ignite and invigorate their employees to be willing to solve those problems. Because Here's the crazy part. There's actually a solution to every single problem in this world. Yep. It's just whether or not you're willing to solve it. A lot of them have been solved, but there are still big, big issues. And like you said, a lot of them being in Africa as well with people not being able to earn a living. I mean, $57 a month is, that's terrible. It's crazy. Yeah. An illustration we use in our business mindset training in Africa and around the world is a problem is like there's this barricade in a room and everyone is on one side of the barricade. Everyone assumes you can't get over that barricade, but the person who gets over it, suddenly they've got no competition. They have that whole side of the room to themselves. So if you're willing to face that problem, to climb over, it's not going to be easy. It's not the easy path, but if you climb over it, suddenly you're on the other side You've eliminated competition and then you can win. Right. And a lot of the problem that we see globally that I think is true here in Cookville 
is people don't believe they can climb over that barricade. Mm -hmm. So step one, there's a lot of practical skills. How do you climb? Where do you put your hands? There's practical skills in business. But phase one is, can we believe in our own ability to solve hard problems? And how much time are you willing to commit to solving them? You know, at the end of the day, especially since the pandemic, people are very much concerned with them. Yep. And their families and things that are happening in their life. Yeah. Right. And they're not going to solve those big, difficult, whether you're going to help them or not, it doesn't matter. They're not going to solve those problems because they don't find value in it. You know, it's not like there's an incentive that's going to create more time for them. There may be a monetary incentive, but not everybody nowadays is motivated by money. Yeah. And that could be good. If the, what that means for you is I would trade making more money for more time with my family. Yeah then that's great. Maybe maybe that's how it should be. But in other cases, it's fear-based. Right. The world seems so crazy right now. It seems so scary that we build these walls around us and we want to protect our little kingdoms. But there's actually something better on the other side if we're willing to have courage and we're willing to care about others and not just protecting ourselves. What's fascinating as I'm reading about your business and getting ready for this podcast you live in the United States. Yeah. The people that you come into contact with in Africa, I mean, they would kill to live in the United States. Yeah. But their thirst for entrepreneurship is probably, I mean, it doesn't need any fanning. Yeah. It just needs a little bit of education to get over that wall, right? Right. Most of the people we work with are entrepreneurs by necessity. Yes. There is no job market. The degree to which I hustle and create opportunity for myself is the degree to which I provide for my family right. and move forward in life. So that's all there is. And there's no complacency. There's no lackadaisicalness like we have here. Right. Yeah. Maybe that's why immigrants get that strange tag about being able to start big companies and accomplish big things because they're used to it being a part of their lives, a necessity in their life. Exactly. Yeah. When I look through Flint's social media and website, so much of the content is seemingly geared around empowerment and education rather than throwing resources at a problem and just walking away. Do you think this is what sets Flint Global apart from other similar movements? Yeah, I think it's all based in some of those core values I've mentioned, like we're not the heroes from the outside. Lasting solutions come from local problem solvers. Collaboration and partnership is a way that all people in the world can work together to make the world a better place. You'll see that represented in our social media because it's a core belief of ours, but also the belief that outcomes matter, not just we're going to do a bunch of programs, but we actually care about the end result and we don't just care about it for today. We care about it for next year and five years down the road, building solutions that actually last and create generational transformation in families is all built into what you're talking about, that this is about amplifying what's already present in communities so they can break through some of those historical gaps that have been present and take off uh, way beyond what we could imagine. Why aren't other companies doing this? Why aren't they taking this problem and, and putting a performance-based solution to it? There are many that are trying. Okay. But 
when you talk about something like poverty, it's incredibly complex. It's multifaceted, hard to get your mind and, and arms around it. What is this thing? What does it mean to solve it? And I think in that process, the global aid industry has grown and become very bureaucratic mm. and lost sight of some simple, practical approaches that use more of a business mindset where we have KPIs and we're thinking about the process and the outcomes. The other component is most nonprofits are started by people with huge, great hearts, but they don't necessarily have a lot of experience on systems or organizational development or understanding metrics. Building value. Mm-hmm. And then there's a trade-off for those that do, that grow into these giant behemoth organizations that you see out there. They understand that, but they often end up trading wanting to scale kind of infinitely and they lose the ability to adapt contextually like you're right. talking about. It has to look different in every place. They're trying to over-systematize it as if there's like a magic bullet. You know, it would be a lot easier if I were raising money to drill 10,000 water wells across, you know, 100 countries. It's very clear. It's very simple. Oh, look, there's a water well, but it's it doesn't last. Mm -hmm. Who's going to fix that when it breaks? Who has cash in their pockets? And so that scales. That's easy. Easier. It's not easy. But um, I think we're just standing on the shoulders of all those people who have done very good work, address very important problems, and then... Our team, having spent so much time living in these environments, we're trying to just take it a level deeper and have a little higher standards in terms of excellence around outcomes. And we're certainly not doing it perfectly. This will be a lifetime of growing and improving, but we want to have the highest standards. So what you're describing sounds eerily similar to the of Grant in the Upper Cumberland. Are you familiar with that What's grant? What's it called? TANF? No. So I'm the not. UCHRA has this grant. I talk about it every other episode. Okay, so I'm good. sure everyone that <laughs> listens to this podcast is like, he's talking about it again. But it's so important. And when I explain it, you'll actually understand why. So there's this grant, UCHRA. I believe even the Biz Foundry and the Chamber of Commerce. I mean, millions, millions of dollars to target children who are in poverty, 1,600, I believe, and essentially improve the conditions of the family overall to pull those kids out of poverty. So they're targeting parents who are on government benefits, entitlement programs yep. to say, okay, let's go to work. And as you're working, that benefits cliff that you're afraid of falling off of, we'll go ahead and provide a little bit of support with this money so that you can continue to receive your benefits and you can actually understand what it's like to work an eight to five and provide for your family, et cetera, without the necessity for government benefits. Yeah. So you've met a lot of people in the United States and you've also met a lot of people in Kenya. Do you think that your program for entrepreneurship could work in the United States, because that's what I believe the of Grant is, is essentially gearing people up to believe in themselves, to say, I can work, I can do this job, I can do it well, and I can get my family out of poverty and essentially get these 1,600 kids out of poverty. Yep. It's the exact same thing. In Kenya, in East Africa, there's no benefits cliff. 
there's no safety net at all for there's people. There's no benefits. <laughs> yeah, there's just no safety net. Right. So we also have systems that we put into place over there where it's creating these sorts of systems that are community owned. We are actually uh, beginning a new partnership with Harvest Hands in Nashville, and we are exploring how we can build more domestic programs here in the U.S. because it's the same thing where when you've been in that cycle of trying to find your way forward in life, we've all had it in different like subsectors of our life. And there are a lot of people here in Cookville who have that financially. And there are a lot of obstacles to them breaking through in a way that you don't get knocked back down. Mm -hmm. And some of the essentials are exactly what we teach everywhere in the world. Like what is your view of yourself? Do you believe you can grow? Do you believe you can solve problems? Do you believe you can learn new skills? When you've been knocked down over and over and over again, you start to wonder, you start to doubt yourself. I think we can all relate to that when we zoom in and are honest about certain parts of our lives. So there's that. There's personal finance skills that we teach. There's practical skills about building a business, but also we teach personal and professional skills. How do you apply for a job? How do you connect with a business owner and see if they're willing to hire you. All of those things, they have to be contextualized to each place, but we're eagerly wanting to do more here in the U.S. I can see how that might be a barrier in Kenya, right? I mean... Which part? Well, the barrier in terms of like people needing financial literacy training, oh, yeah. people needing to understand how to you know obtain a job, keep a job, what to wear to work, etc., it is somewhat unfathomable that that type of dynamic exists in the United States, that people live in the richest country in the world, the largest economy, that literally believe that capitalism is king and the American dream is queen. How is that possible? How do you reconcile that? I think these fundamental struggles are the same everywhere. And I think that it's very hard for those of us who have grown up in awareness of like professional workplace etiquette or how you do a job interview or even just like certain social skills, there are so many factors in each of our lives that are affected by the family that we're born into, the circumstances that hit our families. I think we have to have more empathy for where people are coming from. No one wakes up and says, I want to be poor. I want to not be sure how I'm going to pay rent the end of this week. Right. I want to owe the hospital some money. That stuff is stressful. And things happen in people's lives that take them to a certain place. And it can become this thing we call a cycle where it seems to an outsider like, well, you could just go work there and then you get paid this and then you work your way up. But first of all, the outsider doesn't understand the complexities of their situation. Like, okay, maybe you get paid this much at McDonald's, but that's not your true hourly rate because you don't own a car. So you have to walk this amount of time to get there and this amount. So if you're factoring in the, that time, your hourly rate is lower. There's a lot of complexity. And we need to acknowledge that we don't understand other people's situations. We need to trust that people are trying their best. And if we can come alongside people 
and be willing to understand where they're coming from and be able to enter the complexity, understand these things that keep getting in the way and create pathways for people to walk along that progress can be made. There's a million things that will keep plenty of people from ever being able to get out of that. And those are often byproducts of something that happened in their story that will be very hard to overcome. But there are reasons that people are where they are and they need to not be critiqued, but they need to be told, you can do this. There is a pathway forward and we're willing to walk alongside you and try to understand what that pathway might look like. So you recently spent about two weeks in Kenya in partnership with our friends at the Biz Foundry. Tell us about the trip and share a few highlights from your time. Yeah, it was a great trip. I've worked out of the Biz Foundry, our organization's offices there. We just have a great relationship with everyone at the Biz Foundry. And Tiffany Anton, the vice president, came along, as did uh, Shella Rooney, who works with GoNe here in Cookville. And we had a lot of different objectives we packed into this one little trip. But the Biz Foundry has very generously been collaborating with us in this move to develop an entrepreneur center, a brick and mortar center there in, in Kenya. Oh, wow. That will act as a hub for all of our work across East Africa. And will also provide business incubation for larger businesses that will create more employment in Kenya. And it will also be a revenue generator where that revenue can be used to fund these programs for people who cannot afford access to a center like that. So Tiffany came along. We had a lot of strategic conversations about what this entrepreneur center is going to look like. We met with incredible community leaders who are going to be instrumental in that process. It was good for Tiffany to get to meet them, to understand the key players. And we saw elephants in the wild and just the beauty of Kenya. It's a really beautiful place. If anyone ever wants to travel with us, we love taking guests. Tiffany also interviewed a bunch of uh, women entrepreneurs as a, nice. a part of Powered by Her. So Kenya will become a critical hub for all of our work in East Africa. As we scale, as we grow, more and more of our work to be executed through these local hubs around the world and for the U.S. role to be more minor in terms of a sure. lot of the operational parts. How often do you travel to a different country? For me, it's usually around four times a year. And I tend to be going to Africa or India, so it's a two-week trip. I try not to do more for my family's sake. Sometimes I end up having a fifth, but we have about 10 on our team here in the U.S. And so most of them are traveling one or two times, sometimes three times a year as well. So when I was reading your article, only 13% of the money that you generate goes to overhead. Yep. So the rest of the money, that's what, 87% is used to promote entrepreneurship in different countries. So last year, that was an older number. Last year, it was more like 10%. Oh, wow. So 10% is going to critical fundraising and administrative things. These are things that also have to happen for our work to happen. But 90%, for every dollar you give, 90% is being deployed directly into the programs Amazing. we're doing around the world. Where do you get your funding from? Just like regular people or businesses? Almost all of our funding is individuals and families wow. who give monthly or occasionally as a part of the Spark community to help this movement happen around the world. 
We do have some businesses. We have some churches. We have gotten a couple grants, but we're really, you know, we're only three years in. We're learning a lot. We've had this amazing community rally around the work because of the quality of what it is, because we're a team of field practitioners. We know a lot about doing the work on the ground. Right. And we're new to this whole uh, fundraising and all that. But we're looking for business partners. We're looking for more church partners. We're looking for foundations that want to be a part of this. That is what fuels all of this to be possible. That is the economic engine that creates these sparks around the world for lives to change. One thing, not to take anything away from obviously Kenya or South America, Central America, but India, man. Yeah. Right? Like that's an economic engine right there, a global powerhouse. They say that India's population will be the largest in four years, if I'm not mistaken. So it'll overtake China. It's wild. What a lot of people don't understand about India, it's a duality. So there are two specific economic sectors in India or economic levels in India. So the majority of people are farmers, right? Yep. And then there's this IT sector that have the higher earners. And then there's, you know, obviously people that are very wealthy, but primarily it's this duality of an economy. And so exactly you want to create all these different sectors so that everyone has a way to use their skills to move up the ladder, right? Yeah. One of our lead partners in India, when I went to visit for the first time, she said, India is the country where we can put a person in outer space and we have thousands of people sleeping on the streets of Calcutta. And so those extremes are so extreme and it has this huge economic growth, but because it is so populated, there's this enormous population who have been neglected and lost along the way. And so we worked with Sonia and her family and they built a buffalo dairy. They're building this herd of buffalo dairies and this creates employment for people managing the buffalo, for farmers who are growing the grass to feed the buffaloes. What's buffalo milk taste like? Uh, I only had it in tea and it, it just tasted like great, great chai. It was, it was all good as far as I could tell. I like that. So locally in the Upper Cumberland, how can we support Flint Global and what resources do you need as a company to continue growing? It really is about the community that gathers around the belief that the poorest people on the planet can be equipped to solve their own problems, to build their own pathways out of poverty, and people who realize that we're all in this together We're one big family on this planet and who are willing to rally around this work. And so we need volunteers, we need advocates, we need donors, we need people willing to commit time or skills or expertise. Do you want to look over a business plan of a buffalo dairy in India? Do you want to travel with us to see it in person and understand the nuances and ask the hard questions about What does this have to do with my community in Cookville? Mm And how can we be a part of a solution here while we're also solving problems in our hometown? The more people who can rally around that, the more we can all do more together. And being connected to churches or businesses or foundations or just families who are willing to give 50 bucks a month. I think it's very hard for people to understand how far $50 can go on the ground in the places we work. It could seem small to people here, but it is enormous the way it genuinely can change a family forever. 
So we're just looking for people for whom it would bring them joy to be a part of this movement, to walk alongside us and to just reach out and talk to us. Isn't it crazy just how complex and how different the world is? Yeah. I mean, 50 bucks yeah. in the United States relative to how far $50 would go in a place like Kenya. It's insane. South Sudan, a woman, $50 can capitalize her whole business that doubles her income in less than a year, doubles her entire household income. And suddenly, instead of only one kid in school, all three of her kids are in school. They've got two meals a day instead of one. And they are working their way to just changing that reality forever for a whole family. And then that ripples through the community. I think we should not take advantage of our social safety net. Every time you keep saying, <laughs> you keep telling these stories, I keep thinking to myself, if we didn't have a social safety net, imagine how people would be living. Mm. It's quite insane. Where do you see Flint Global in 10 years? And how do you envision the organization evolving both locally, but also globally? Yeah. So based on what we've been able to do over the past three years, we've set a vision that over the next 10 years, nine and a half ish now to impact over half a million people. So we know what that takes because of the data we have economically and in terms of the growth of the organization. Every day there are people reaching out to us who have heard about our work all over the world who want partnership. That drives us the fact that I want to be able to provide for my family, for my kids, and I know that they want that for their family. So we would like to impact over half a million people over the next 10 years. We want to build these local hubs in these different regions, and we want to have more domestic work here in the U.S., in Nashville, in Cookville, and wherever else it makes sense for this to be deployed, the same toolkit reapplied for the American, the United States context here. Amazing. So we always like to end the show on a high note. Who is someone that makes you better when you're together? Yeah, so I get incredibly focused. I get tunnel vision. And it's easy for me in my drive to forget to be present, to forget the more important things in life and a lot of people make me better. I work with so many amazing people, but Lauren Troll, my wife, teaches me that at the end of the day, the time I spent with my family, the time I spent with my friends, how I interacted with the person at the grocery store or in traffic, I get a little irritated in traffic. I'm trying to learn. She's teaching me that when I look back at the end, the things that will have truly made an impact in my life are the moments I spent with the people who I was with on any given moment. So that's what I'm trying to learn. And she teaches me just by sheer example, because she is so present. She cares about people. It's all about people first. It's about caring about others and not serving yourself. And I think if we would all just do that, <laughs> I wouldn't even need to do this organization. None of this work would be needed if we could all be more driven by that desire to be present to what's around us, to serve the people we come in contact with, and to treat people well. 
Thank you for joining us on this episode of Better Together with Costa Yepa Fontiv. If you've enjoyed listening and you want to hear more, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Leave us a review or better yet, share this episode with a friend. Better Together with Costa Yepa Fontiv is a Costa Yepa Fontiv production. Today's episode was written and produced by Morgan Franklin. Post-production, mixing, and editing by Mike Franklin. Want to know more about Costa? Visit us at costayepafontiv.com. We're better together.